You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Steve Gregg is author of the really good book, All You Want to Know About Hell, Three Christian Views of God's Final Solution to the Problem of Sin. He is host of a daily radio Bible talk show called The Narrow Path, heard on many radio stations nationally, also available as a podcast called The Narrow Path. He is also the author of other books, Revelation, Four Views, A Parallel Commentary, and Empire of the Risen Sun, a treatise on the kingdom of God. To find out more about Steve, go to his website, thenarrowpath.com. Steve also has an app called The Narrow Path, where all of his resources are nicely organized. Welcome, Steve Gregg, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Well, I really enjoyed your book. I uh, consulted your book when I was uh, rethinking my views about uh, about hell, and I found it to be an excellent comparison of all the different views. I thought you did a very fair job, you know, in 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 giving sort of equal attention to each of the views and trying to present them as well as you as you possibly could. But I also enjoyed in your book that you told something about your own story, and there's a um, there's a part in your book you you call your journey to the center of the earth, which I thought was a an interesting uh, title there, somewhat humorous. Anyway, you, you you talk there about how you start out with the traditional view, and then how there were some other things that happened that begin to make you be aware that there might be other views. So, could you just talk a little bit about that journey? Well, I've been uh, an evangelical Christian from my frankly, from my childhood. I was raised in a a Baptist home, uh, very conservative parents. Uh, I received the gospel when I was young, had no problem with it, never never had any real struggles with anything uh, I was taught, including the doctrine of hell. Uh, Some people really struggle with the traditional doctrine of hell, uh, and probably I should have, but I was a kid. So I didn't think that much about it. You know, I, I never thought very deeply or f- philosophically about it. I just, uh, I had, over the course of growing up, heard all of the excuses. I, I call them that now. They were reasons at the time mm-hmm. uh, for believing that view. Uh, you know, all the standard objections that we might have. You know, how could it be just for God to punish eternally somebody for finite amount of sins and so forth. I had all the, I had all the standard answers I had learned. Uh, my father, who was not in the ministry, was nonetheless a voracious reader of Christian books and had a big library of Christian books. And he had a lot of them that were apologetics works. A lot of them were theological works and, and quite a few were question and answers from the Bible kind of works. And I, so mm-hmm. I, I veiled myself of these in my, in my adolescent years. And, knew all the arguments for the traditional view of hell. I never really had any problems believing it because I thought that the scriptures had a lot of support for it. Mm -hmm. I was under the impression that there were lots of verses 
that taught the eternal conscious dormant view. And mm -hmm. so I knew it was unpopular with some, uh, but I figured, well, it's a sad thing uh, if you don't like the view, but it, it's what the Bible teaches. And, you know, you can always avoid it you know, by becoming a Christian. So right. I don't have much I could do to alter that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, you know, I, I just assumed that the people who didn't believe in the traditional view were liberals or were uh, cultists or something like that. I knew, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses did not believe in hell as, as we taught it. And uh, Seventh-day Adventists, who I was always a little ambivalent about whether they were a cult or not, but they were certainly fringe. Uh, you know, I, I knew they didn't believe in an eternal torment of hell. But I, mm -hmm. that didn't bother me because I wasn't in their group. And as far as I was concerned, their groups were not mainstream. Uh, it wasn't until the 80s, and by the way, I went in the ministry in 1970, and I've been a Bible teacher since then, so it's been 52 years now I've been in the ministry. Uh, wow. And, and I've been teaching the Bible uh, actively. I, I ran a Bible school for 16 of those years. I, I travel around the world uh, for an organization called Youth with a Mission and teaching their Bible schools. Uh, I've been doing that for 40 years and so forth. But I, I just began teaching in home Bible studies and things like that originally. So I, but I've never stopped teaching. I've, I've been a Bible teacher. I've taught through the entire Bible many, many times. And so I had my answers to everybody's questions already in place. Mm -hmm. in and, uh, and I was surprised in the mid eighties to discover that John R.W. Stott had uh, come out in favor of the conditional immortality view. And also Clark Pinnock, both of whom were men I respected. Uh, mm -hmm. I had read the, uh, a lot of Clark Pinnock's work and thought he was very uh, brilliant. And certainly he was an evangelical uh, apologist, uh, mm -hmm. highly respected in Baptist circles and so forth. Right. And there was Edward Fudge who had written, I who had written it. I didn't hear his name until the 90s. I, oh, okay. I, know, I know he wrote a book, uh, the, the Fire That Consumes, but I never became aware of that book until I think it was the 90s. Oh, okay. And so, um, so it was mainly, and by the way, Edward Fudge was totally unknown to me apart from his book, whereas John Stott and Clark Pinnock were known to me as mainstream evangelical heroes. Uh, right. And that they, that they would abandon the traditional doctrine of hell was really something. Now, if someone had said, oh, yeah, well, you know, William Fudge, he, he also takes that view, I would have thought, well, who's he? You know, I mean, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I don't know him. I've, I've heard all. John Stott was much is was much better known in the UK. Yeah, although among college students in this country, he he had a, a following as well. Uh, okay, I mean, he, he had written uh, oh, "Basic Christianity" was a very popular book of his. Uh, "The Cross of Christ" was another. He he had written quite a few books that had gotten attention. But you're right; he was a bigger name in in Britain than in America. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I, I just thought that was very strange that they held those views. And I, uh, I, I will say that later on when I read Fudge's book, I was surprised to find that F.F. F. Bruce had written uh, whatever the foreword to it and had spoken somewhat favorably of the view. He did not commit himself to it, mm -hmm. but was definitely open to the conditional immortality view, which, which was now F.F. F. Bruce 
he's a scholar that I've read. I've read. I've, I've got a shelf full of his commentaries. I've read over over the decades. Right. Um, so I mean, it was interesting to me just to know that there were other views, uh, or at least other evangelicals who held other views. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still had not really been exposed to uh, Christian universalism at all. I had read when I was younger. Hannah Whitehall Smith's book, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life, and I found it very rich and very mm-hmm. helpful. Uh, but she didn't mention anything about her views. I, I later heard through the grapevine that she was a universalist, and that surprised me because I liked her material so much, and I'd never encountered an evangelical yeah. who helped Well, the first, me. what I found out about that book was the first edition of that book contained some later chapters where she... She spoke, she spoke openly about that and described all of that. But then later on, when the book was reproduced, they didn't, they didn't include those later chapters. So yeah, people didn't since, know about it. I have since seen uh, individual chapters she wrote about that. Uh, I don't know if they were published in a later book. I, uh, they might have been in her book, The God of All Comfort. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I also had heard about Jacques Ellul and some other, um, you know, not not exactly mainstream guys, but but I had a lot of evangelical friends, scholarly friends who who liked some of these authors, and and they were universalists. But I never actually heard a case for it. I never heard a case for universalism. I thought, well, I just don't see how anyone could hold a view like that. And you you mentioned I have a radio program uh, for the past twenty five years. I've been on daily live uh, radio stations across the country who where the reason it's a live program is people call in with Bible questions, and I mm-hmm. endeavor, endeavor to answer them on the air. And um, people began to ask me about help. And I remember uh, at the beginning of my uh, radio program back in 1997, um, I was still very much a traditionalist, but I was having a considerable more amount of respect for the other views than I had ever had say, a few years earlier. So when someone would say, well, what is hell? I, I'd say, well, here's there are three views. And I would share what I understood to be the essence of each of the three views. And then I would conclude by saying, yeah, but I mean, although all of these views have some scriptural support, I personally think that we're safest in holding to the, the most uh, severe view, because if we hold the most severe view, and it turns out that we're wrong, uh, we won't be disappointed. Whereas if we accept mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the less severe views and the severe view turns out to be correct, then we will have uh, maybe misled ourselves and others by teaching something less severe than mm-hmm. is really the case. So, I mean, that was kind of my attitude. I, I now hold a very different attitude, but I, I still felt that the arguments in favor of the traditional view were pretty much the strongest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I was—I sort of had an, an intuition about how much scriptural support there was for it. I, I hadn't really gone looking to enumerate the verses in the Bible that really said something about eternal conscious torment. Of course, when I eventually went around, got around to doing that, I was very shocked that there are hardly any at all. Uh, I mean, there are a bunch of verses that peop- that I would use to teach about hell, but a lot of them had no comments about eternal conscious torment. I mean, they'd talk about there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, there's <clears throat> outer darkness, but no reference to duration or anything like that. I mean, you, I would just read into those, the eternal conscious torment from a few verses, usually in Revelation, 
or maybe in the story of the sheep and the goats. But eventually, uh, I was I began to read some of the books by the other views, and uh, I was impressed. I was impressed that both uh, the conditional immortality view and the universalist view had more of a scriptural case than I was than I would have guessed. Uh, Again, intuitively, I still felt there were a lot of scriptures in favor of the traditional eternal conscious torment view, but I haven't really uh, quantified them or, or gone looking to see how many there were. But uh, I eventually thought, well, you know, this whole thing of, of hell, there's definitely more than one possibility here. And most people I know don't know that. And I was getting enough people calling me on the air asking about hell that I was having to repeat myself so many times. I thought, well, maybe I'll just put together a book comparing the different views. And mm -hmm. then I recommend it to people who wonder. That's what I had done previously with my book on Revelation. I, I, I get a lot of calls. People ask me about Revelation, too. And, and, and they're all usually assuming a certain view of Revelation, usually the futures. Mm -hmm. And I had come to discard the futures view myself. But I wasn't very interested in convincing people of my own view of it. I just thought when people ask me about hell, they are assuming one thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't assume that. So I thought maybe I'll write a book just outlining the four different views, which I did. And uh, and so I thought about doing the same thing with hell. Now, uh, as I read, I realized that the traditional view of hell had almost nothing in the Bible in its favor, literally. I mean, I, I, think, I, I think I could find maybe three verses in the Bible that sounded like they might be talking about eternal conscious torment. Uh, one of them was uh, Matthew 25, 46. These shall go away into everlasting punishment. Again, mm -hmm. that, doesn't, that doesn't say everlasting conscious torment, but it sounded like it. So, I mean, it's, it, it's, it would be a good verse for that view. And then there were a couple places in Revelation. One was Revelation 14, 11. You know, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. So mm -hmm. it didn't occur to me that that might not even be describing hell. As I now understand that passage, I don't think it's even talking about hell. But... Anyway, that's that sounded like an eternal torment passage. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the other one was in Revelation 20, I think, verse 10, where it says that the dragon was thrown into the into the uh, lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are, and they're tormented day and night uh, forever and ever. And so we've got the devil and the, and the beast and the false prophet tormented forever and ever. And yet that doesn't say anything about anyone else being tormented forever and ever there. In fact, I personally think... The language is figurative. I don't. I don't believe it's talking literally. First, first of all, I don't know that there is such a thing as day and night in the lake of fire. You know, I don't know if the sun goes up <laughs> there. You know, I mean, day and yeah. night were established with the with the turning of the earth. Not not when you're in the lake of fire. I don't know if there's such a thing as day and night. But it says they're tormented day and night. So I I had a feeling that if if such an a, such a counterintuitive view of the punishment of sinners was true then the Bible should say a lot about it. And it shouldn't only mention it in the most symbolic portions. I mean, Revelation is clearly the most symbolic book in the Bible. And mm -hmm. the parable of the sheep and the goats has its symbolic aspects. For example, people are not sheep or goats. I mean, right. obviously, you know, I, I was still willing to believe in such a thing as eternal conscious term, but if these verses were teaching it, I thought, why would something that seems so incorrect, something so unjustifiable 
why would it not be taught thoroughly in Scripture? Why would it be that when Adam and Eve were told that they would be punished if they sinned, that they're simply told they would die? They weren't told they'd be tormented eternally. You know, why does Paul say the wages of sin is death? Why did Ezekiel say the soul that sins shall die? Why is it that dying is the worst of it that is mentioned? And uh, if it was really something far worse. So I began to suspect that the Bible doesn't teach the traditional view. Now, as far as the now, other view, go let ahead. me just let me break in right here. The you have mentioned you you use that that term the traditional view, and I think it's interesting that it's called the traditional view because in Western Christianity, although there were different views in the early church, there were universalist views in the early church, and there was annihilation views, and and there was some uh, the idea that maybe this torment continues on forever. There were all these views. Uh, there was no insistence that anybody had to agree to any one of them in order to be a Christian. Right. So it was kind of an open. The early creeds of the church didn't, didn't mandate that you had to believe in any one view of judgment in order to be a Christian. But then we get into the those of us that are in the, I'll say, Western world, we, we kind of inherited a Western theological tradition. Theology of Augustine is very central in that tradition. So the traditional view when, isn't, it, it's, it's, it's a view that ultimately over centuries became the accepted view. But mm-hmm. one of the things, and you make this clear, you have some good quotes in your book. You have one from uh, J.I. Packer, and he's a solid evangelical. Mm-hmm. He says, we are forbidden to become enslaved to human tradition, even evangelical tradition. We may never assume the complete rightness of our own established ways of thought and practice and excuse ourselves the duty of testing and reforming them by Scripture. And then you also quote John uh, R. W. Stott, who we talked about earlier, who said, the hallmark of an authentic evangelicalism is not the uncritical repetition of old traditions, but the willingness to submit every tradition, however ancient, to fresh biblical scrutiny and, if necessary, reform. So I just think that's Im- that's important to know that when you talk about the traditional position, we're just talking about the position that became the received tradition in Western Christianity, but you're not talking about something that cannot be evaluated or thought through, even from the position of evangelicalism, which is the whole idea that we are continuing to not be dominated by traditions, but by fresh engagement with the scripture themselves. So I yeah. thought you did a good job of pointing that out in the book. <clears throat> well, I mentioned that a lot of reformed people, uh, you know, repeat a slogan, which is reformed and always reforming. And yeah, uh, and yet most reformed people I know are not always reforming. In fact, they re, they resist reforming any further. They feel like John Calvin, uh, you know, and the Reformation itself kind of rediscovered all truth. And there's no reason to reform any further. I mentioned in my book, I have found that to be always reforming is the best way to alienate your conservative friends, <laughs> you know, because... <laughs> Conservative friends don't appreciate you reforming, don't, don't always uh, want you to uh, recheck on some of the doctrines that have not been thoroughly. Debunked. Well, when you, when you, in the book, when you work through uh, the eternal conscious torment view, you do 
list some of the, the concerns that you began to have with it. One of them was that the problem of hell dehumanizing our behavior. You talk about uh, Queen Mary I of England and how her view of hell ended up making her dehumanize other people. Could you say something about that? Yeah, she was a very harsh and torturing and killing Protestants. And when she was asked how she could justify that, she said, well, you know, if God's going God's gonna to burn them in eternal fires, how can, I, how can I not, you know, imitate the divine justice by burning them in temporal fires? Uh, mm-hmm. In other words, she figured if that's how God feels about him, why shouldn't I? And I think this is something that I have encountered, especially with those who are very strongly supportive of the eternal conscious torment view, is that now when I supported it, it was only because I really thought that the case, you know, the weight of scriptures was in its favor. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really examined it critically yet. But um, I never liked it. But there are some people who seem to like it well. There are some people who are offended if you're going to even suggest that sinners are not going to be tormented forever and ever. And I think, how can you, how can you like a doctrine like that? Um, and I think the only way they could is if that's kind of the attitude they have towards sinners. Uh, I mean, I don't mean to speak ad hominem against people who hold that view, but, but uh, you know, there are some people who say, well, well, if God doesn't uh, torment these people forever and ever, then he's not a God of justice. I think, well, what if he, do you expect him to torment you forever and ever? Does, you know, you, you believe he tormented Christ in your place. So why, why would he not be a God of justice if he did the same for other people? Uh, you know, and why, why is he a God of justice and somehow you get away with not being tormented? Uh, there's a, I think there's a very selfish attitude that some Christians maintain just because Frankly, selfishness is a default attitude of human beings and even Christians. Well, when you have to, I mean, when you feel like you have to defend a position, especially if you feel like if you don't defend it, that it might happen to you, you know, you you just develop certain psychological ways of of Mm -hmm. dealing with it. You include a quote from John R.W. Stott, who said, I find the concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. Yeah. I mean, how, I mean, if you know that your neighbor or you believe that your neighbor who is not a Christian, but not a bad person, just an ordinary good neighbor, but not a Christian, if you know or think that they're going to be tormented forever and ever, I mean, I don't think most Christians really believe that. I mean, they, they say that is their doctrine, but they don't think about it. If you knew, for example, that your neighbor, I, I have some nice, uh, um, uh, some people from Iran across the street, uh, mm-hmm. neighbors, and uh, they're, they're Baha'i faith. And they, they left Iran under persecution because Baha'i was persecuted there. And so now they've found refuge in America. Very sweet people. We've been in their home. They've been in our home for meals. Uh they don't understand the gospel. I mean, they, they think Jesus is good because Baha'i believes that he's one of the, you know, many ways in which the same person returned. Uh-huh. Uh, obviously, they're sub-Christian in their views. But if I believed that they were going to be arrested innocently and taken to jail 
and beaten mercilessly night and day for a week and then released, I'd find it intolerable. I mean, I, it would it torment that whole week. I would be tormented by the thought that mm -hmm. these nice people are being unjustly tormented like this. Now, if I believe they're going to be tortured in fire forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, how can I even look at them without becoming totally brokenhearted? And, and yet, if we believe that God wants that, then we think, well, he must be very differently disposed than we are. And that's what, of course, people say who hold to the eternal conscious term. They say, well, God's attitude is different than ours. They say when we, Tertullian was one who said this. He says, you know, when we are viewing them in hell, we'll be rejoicing in their mm -hmm. annihilation or not annihilation, in their torment because, mm -hmm. uh, because we'll see it the way God does. I think, well, where in the Bible does it say that God rejoices in the punishment of the wicked? The Bible says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from their evil way and live. God has no love for, for punishment of people. And so, I mean, the fact that someone would say, well, that's what the Bible teaches, and, and I'm okay with it, means that they either they either are pretty cruel people themselves or they just assume God's a lot more cruel than we are and we just have to be good with it because the Bible tells us so. Well, one of the points that you make in the book that I think is kind of an obvious one once you think about it is that hell is prepared by God, that it's not, it cannot be an accidental part of the creation. You say that God has provided for every contingency so that nothing will ultimately prove to be his undoing. Even hell, whatever it is like, was prepared by God for something. That's the main uh, thesis, really, of my book. And that is, it's not just, that, hey, there's three different views of hell I want you to know about. The, the thesis of the book is everything God does is purposeful. So when he made hell, he had a purpose for it. So what exactly is the purpose of hell? Now, if we accept universalism, we'd say the purpose of hell is to get everyone saved, which sounds pretty consistent with God's character generally revealed in Scripture. If mm -hmm. we say, well, he's going to annihilate the wicked, and that way, you know, uh, you know, not everybody can be saved because so many people will resist him permanently. Uh, well, then he'll just annihilate them. That's like that's like putting down the old dog who's got rabies. You know, you love the dog, but you can't keep him around. He's a danger to himself and others. Mm -hmm. So, so you got to get rid of him. That that would also be consistent with love, uh, somewhat less so if God had the power to continue appealing to them really forever, really, if He wished. Uh, but then if you say, well, it's eternal conscious torment and there's no possibility of redemption from there, there or relief. I mean, I was so shocked because when I believed in the traditional view, I assumed the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. I assumed that humans are just created immortal and therefore God has no choice. If we don't want to live with him, we got to live forever away from him, which is the very definition of horrible. You know, mm -hmm. and so I just felt like, well, God's not exactly sending people to hell. They're just choosing to be away from him. And, and because they're immortal, what can he do? You know, and mm -hmm. it never. First of all, I don't believe the Bible teaches in natural immortality. I, the Bible says only God possesses immortality and we receive immortality in Christ. But but uh, I found when I was reading and researching for my book, as I read those who held the eternal conscious torment view, that like Robert Morey and, uh, and many others who are very famous evangelical defenders of the traditional view, 
They said, yeah, yeah, man is not immortal. God will keep people alive specifically to torment them forever and ever. In other words, they would say, left to themselves, the unbeliever would simply vanish because they're not naturally immortal. But God will prolong their lives infinitely in order to punish them. I think, now, wait a minute. That's like if I was in prison and tormented by communist captors every day, uh, I'd hope to die. And if they tor torture me right up to the point where I almost die, but then they stop and bring in a doctor and revive me just so I won't escape through death so they can torment me another day, mm -hmm. I consider that to be the utmost cruelty. I, I mean, why would, what would God get out of that? And therefore the purpose of hell, as I said, if it's universalism is to save everybody. If it's, if it's annihilationism, it's to take out the trash uh, that won't be redeemed. But if it's eternal conscious torment, it's nothing but to ventilate an eternal vengefulness on God's part, which the Bible denies that he possesses. Well, this is an interesting part of your, you, you talk about hell and the character of God, and you note that God is what he makes and what he does. And then you, you argue that if the traditional doctrine is true, then God is vengeance. Yeah, well, I mean, it would seem so. And that's that's the main thing. Uh, my main interest in writing on the three views is to revisit the question of the character of God, because hell is whatever God made it to be. God did not find himself, unfortunately, in a hard position where he made eternal beings that he cannot cannot do anything but let them live forever, and yet he can't determine where they will go. They have to make that own their own choice, so he's just stuck with a situation he doesn't want, namely that there's going to be people eternally tormented. I, I don't believe the Bible teaches that God's stuck with anything. I think that God is sovereign. I think God makes things as he wants them to be. I, I do mm -hmm. believe people have enough free will to, to do things that displease God, but ultimately I believe God wins. I believe that God, uh, what, you know, I, I mentioned that I, I've always been more of an Arminian than a Calvinist. And in the early part of the book, I mentioned that Calvinists believe that God foreordained some people who would never have any chance to be saved simply so he could torment them forever and ever, which just seems monstrous. But I said, Arminians believe that God wants to save everybody, but he, but he can't. Well, even if that's true, still God has something to say about what he will do to those that he can't save. If he wants to torment them forever and ever, then that makes him a pretty awful being. Why would anyone want to torment their enemies forever and ever? Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who who, who persecute you. Bless those who curse you so that you'll, right, right. Be, like so that you'll be like your Father in heaven. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And so Jesus didn't teach that God is eternally vengeful toward anyone. And even the Old Testament doesn't teach that. It says he won't keep his anger forever. Well, one of the things that you then move to in the book is putting hell in its place. And so... I think what can happen is that the gospel can become defined as deliverance from hell. And so then hell takes center stage. But you make a very important point that really, if you look at the gospel of Jesus, the kingdom of God, his, his gospel about the kingdom was really center stage to what he was talking about. And the idea of judgment then has to fit in some way with how you understand that kingdom message. Could, could you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think that, I think the Calvinistic uh, or the Augustinian, let me just put it the Augustinian view of eternal, of, of original sin, put it that way, has given us the impression that God's default attitude toward all people from the time they're conceived in the womb is that they are horrible sinners. Uh, they're guilty of rebellion against him uh, because they were in Adam and Adam rebelled and therefore all humans share in that, uh, that guilt of Adam. And therefore God's default attitude toward all people is vengeance. You know, boy, you're a rebel and I'm, I'm a just God. And as a just God, you know, I glorify myself in punishing my, my enemies. Now, and the impression that many evangelicals have, and I think I had it too, is that, you know, you take the average human being, Christian or non-Christian, and the ad, the you know God's attitude is, you know, I'm angry at you. Give me a good reason not to be, you know, and uh, and the reason not to be is to believe in Jesus. The reason not to be is to become a Christian. And if people don't hear about Jesus, or if people don't understand the gospel when they hear about it, or they don't accept the gospel, then they simply have uh, not given God any excuse to love them, not given God any excuse to be generous to uh, toward them. Uh, and therefore they fall into the default of uh, damnation. And, and therefore, with this attitude, then salvation is really about getting away, escaping from damnation. You know, that's basically what it comes down to. Everyone's born damned on this view. And uh, hopefully in your lifetime, you'll be lucky enough to hear the gospel and make the right choices and you can escape damnation. And that's why so much evangelical preaching uh, is about, you know, accept Jesus so you can go to heaven. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be a terrible fate for those who don't. Now, there may be indeed a terrible fate for those who don't. I mean, even in, under universalism, there are people who no doubt deserve some rather severe dealings and not pleasant ones. But the truth is that that's not the center of God's purpose. God's purpose is not to uh, destroy and wipe out and and punish everybody who has rebelled against him, though that may be a consequence of their rebellion. That's not what he made them for. <clears throat> he, he made people to, frankly, someday to reign with him. That's what he said. Let's make man in our own image and let's give him dominion over the, th over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. God made humans to co-reign with him. And yet man seemed to, uh, in the vetting process in the garden, seem to have disqualified himself for that. And so the whole of the gospel is how God has set about to restore what was lost. In other words, God valued his creation. When he, when he created it, he said, it's very good. He was very pleased with it. Man kind of wrecked things by his rebellion, but that doesn't mean that God says, oh shoot, now I'm, what am I gonna do now? You know, I guess I'll just have to be angry with these people and show them how angry I am when they die. Uh, no, he set out to restore, restore creation, restore mankind. And, uh, you know, the whole story of the Old Testament is about God establishing a kingdom in, in the nation of Israel. Uh, of course, they didn't, they didn't do well either. Eventually, Christ mm -hmm. came to establish the kingdom in himself. And so this kingdom, Jesus said, is like a mustard seed that's very small and grows into a great tree and, and the helpless Creatures, you know, lodge under its shade and its branches. Uh, Daniel said to be like a stone that grows into a great mountain to fill the whole world and 
replaces all the kingdoms of the world. There's this great, wonderful story about God's kingdom established in Christ, which is eventually going to be uh, encompassing the whole world, and which is the restoration of what God had in mind when he made man in the first place. That's well, one of the things one of the things that really attracted me to the kingdom of God is uh, you know I, I didn't I was kind of turned off by evangelical fundamentalist Christianity when I was a teenager I didn't know that's what it was it was just the only thing that I was around mm-hmm. and then when I got to be a little older and I got to be in college um, I, I found out the, about C.S. Lewis, and I started reading him, and I found out that there was a much more there was a much more gentle, sort of optimistic Christianity that I had known about. Eventually, I found out about Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God, and I guess that one of the things my dad had been in the military, and I think he was somewhat traumatized by that experience because he'd been involved in killing people in Vietnam, and he told me one time that the, you know, that people. We're really only going to, people are only going to be willing to talk to you once they know that you can kill them and that you will. Mm-hmm. And so this world runs on violence and somebody has to, has to do it in order to keep control and order. And a lot of people don't like that, but that's the hard truth about the world. And Anyway, there was there was this just kind of harshness about everything, and I don't know if it was I was in a rebellious stage or not. But when I was reading about Jesus and his kingdom of God idea, the, the idea was I I don't have to live in the violent, I don't have to live in the violent retributive uh, kingdoms of this world. That I can receive Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God. And I can love my enemies, and I don't have to participate in violence. Uh, I don't have to live that way. The rest of the world can go on living that way, but I don't have to. Mm-hmm. And to me, the kingdom of God just seemed like this wonderful place where I could live. I didn't have to be angry at anybody. I could forgive everybody. I didn't have to hold any grudges against anybody. I could love my enemies. I didn't have to. It wasn't like a dog-eat-dog world. I I could have some things, but if somebody took them away from me, I didn't have to kill them over it. Or <laughs> it, I just saw this as this beautiful message. This, and I began to sort of see, well, the, you know, my salvation is my deliverance into this, and that I can. And then Jesus taught about how I could said, you know, forgive us our sins. He taught as as you forgive the sins of others. And so I thought, okay, well. It's kind of a reciprocal thing. I shouldn't want to, if I want to be forgiven, I shouldn't hold sins against somebody else. So let me just, let me receive the forgiveness of God. Let me forgive others and let me just live in God's kingdom on earth. And man, that was a much more, if somebody had had given me that vision, that that was possible. But I sort of had to, in a way, I almost had to find out about that on my own, just reading mm-hmm. the New Testament and starting to find out about that. So I think the kingdom of God is such a beautiful place to be able to live on this earth that it's it's upsetting to me that that, that message gets sort of, I don't know, lost in the shuffle so much. People don't know mm-hmm. what to think about it, but I think it's an important, something important for us to reflect on. Well, I think it's because evangelical preachers have found that 
focusing on heaven and hell is much more motivating to the selfish listener than you know presenting them a kingdom which is righteousness and peace and joy in the holy spirit where they forgive their enemies and things like that now people who really have the heart of god are attracted to that wow that sounds wonderful that sounds beautiful yeah but, it's great but a lot of times evangelical preachers aren't interested in only reaching those who have a heart for god they'd like to just fill the pews uh or chairs or whatever they have nowadays and and, <laughs> and the bags that they pass around uh, I, I, I know I'm cynical, but I've been in evangelical churches for 50 years. I've been in leadership in more than one. I've been certainly in uh, the congregations of dozens of them. And I have to say, uh, churches often run like a business. I'm not saying that all the pastors are businessmen. Some of them are godly men, and some of them have very godly motivations. But churches are still run like businesses. They've got expenses. They've got buildings. They've got salaries. And uh, as such, they need clientele. And I think evangelicals have decided the best way to get the most clientele is inform everybody that they can reach that if they don't join them as Christians, and preferably in their own church, uh, that they're going to hell. And uh, that that's the strongest incentive they can give. Well, it is mm -hmm. the strongest incentive they can give to somebody who's self-centered. But in my opinion, what we're to be saved from is not hell, but from self-centeredness. I think our self-centeredness is our sin. And the Bible says his name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Our sins are our bondage. Our sins are our prison. And therefore, being self-centered is our sickness. And to simply attract people to the church by appealing to, and therefore, I would say, uh, endorsing their self-centeredness and say, listen, you know, if, if you don't get saved, you're going to go to hell. You don't want that for yourself, do you? In other words, there is basically appealing to that self-centeredness that we're supposed to be causing, calling them to repent from. And, uh, you know, so people come into Christianity, as they think, uh, for the same reason they do everything else, to, to exploit it for their own benefit. I mean, God is simply another person that they learn how to manipulate for their own advantage. Oh, I, God... Will let me go to heaven if I do jump through certain hoops? Okay, I'll do that. And then God will owe me that. And, you know, people do that with their with their friends. They do it with their spouses. They do it with their parents when they're little. They learn how to manipulate people for their own mm -hmm. advantage. And that's what the gospel, as it's preached by evangelicalism in America, has encouraged people to do toward God. You know, well, you know, you know how to, how to avoid problems with God. When I was... When I went into the fifth grade, I had a teacher that was uh, an, an old willowy uh, maid who was kind of grumpy and, and severe. And she had a reputation that, that terrified rebellious kids like me. And uh, and so I decided I've got to be become teacher's pet so that I don't get, you know, on her bad side and suffer a great deal. And so I learned how to butter her up and, and, and you know, be a fake, a uh, good kid. I, I, mm -hmm. I was really quite rebellious, but... But I, uh, I was afraid of her. So I learned how to do the things that would avoid her wrath. And that's what some people do with God. Uh, you know, they're afraid of him and they will do whatever is necessary to avoid his wrath, but they're not, they're not any less rebellious than they were before in their hearts. They're just, again, manipulating things for their own advantage. And that's what an emphasis on hell in evangelistic preaching, I think, 
encourages people to learn how to steer clear of God's anger and hell. But it doesn't encourage love for God. And how could it? I mean, how can you really love a God that is going to torment everybody you love who isn't a Christian forever and ever and ever and ever? You can and possibly and possibly you yourself if you fail. Right, exactly. I mean, you can you can appreciate like again, I often find that those who are convinced that they are the elect, they talk about how great God's love is to, to elect them because they were such scoundrels. But but they still believe that God doesn't love the people he didn't elect. So, I mean, he's not really a God of love. He just happens to have included you in that small group of people that for some reason he has decided to love. But he, he doesn't love others that he hasn't elected that he could have is how they, you know, I mean. Yeah. Well, even within, the, with, even within the Arminian scheme where God is to love everyone, people can still be motivated to share the gospel because they're afraid that if they don't share the gospel, they're going to go to hell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in either either view, um, the idea in much of American evangelicalism is that the purpose of the gospel is to escape hell. And as I mentioned in my book, in when you read the gospel preaching in the book of Acts, I mean, I did this some years ago when I was teaching through the book of Acts, verse by verse, I realized that what was conspicuous by its absence from Paul's and Peter's evangelistic sermons is any reference to the afterlife. They never mentioned. They never mentioned heaven or hell when they're preaching to unbelievers. They preached Christ. And I realized that they, they did not see as the reason for the gospel that we can avoid what we deserve, namely hell, but that we it's our desire to Make sure that Christ gets what he deserves, that the lamb that was slain will receive the reward of his sufferings, that, you know, Christ has has something coming to him. And our motivation should be that he would not be deprived of it by us. But I think we still think of it as more, well, we deserve to go to hell and Jesus will we'll accept Jesus so we don't get what we deserve. Well, I mean, obviously, we don't want to get what we deserve if we deserve hell, but but that as the motivation of becoming a Christian or of living the Christian life is frankly a low motivation and it's not really uh, worthy well, of Christ. Well, one of the stories, one of the stories that is really prominent in the discussion about hell, you devote an entire chapter to, and that's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And when I was doing my research on all of this, I remember I had, I was looking at the uh, NIV in the early 2000s, and it had that the rich man was in hell. But then later on, in the 2010, 2011, after, there, after that point, the rich man wasn't in hell in the NIV anymore. Now he was in Hades. Yeah. Which was interesting to me that, you know, even evangelical Bible translators were starting to realize that a simple substitution of uh, of Hades that you that you can't just call Hades hell that you're you're that those are those are different Hades is Hades so could you talk a little bit about the rich man and Lazarus and and that whole situation? Sure, sure. a lot of people use the story of rich man and Lazarus to 
support their notions of a hell of eternal torment and so forth. But of course, it doesn't make any such points. Uh, first of all, I'm now convinced that this is not an actual true story. When I was younger, I believed that Jesus was telling an actual case. And when I'd meet people who said, no, it's just a parable, I thought, well, but parables don't have a man's proper name like Lazarus in it. And, uh, and even the parables of Jesus are true to life. A man sowing seeds, a woman putting leaven in a lump of dough, these are true to life situations. So even if this were a parable, it's describing a real type situation. Now, I don't believe that anymore. I, and I think you probably have studied this out too, to know that Jesus was actually using uh, a parabolic par paradigm that was very common among the rabbis. Yeah, kind of a kind of a folk tale that it was already around. Right. It was. It was not the exact same story, but there's been. A, yeah, I think they have found in ancient Jewish literature about eighteen or so different rabbinic stories that are very similar about two men before they died, and and then they die, and on the other side of death, they're fortunes are reversed and things like that. So that Jesus was picking up a very typical template uh, that that the Jews were familiar with from the rabbinic teaching. It was not based on reality. And I, I sometimes say it's it's a little bit like if we uh, if a preacher would say, you know, what are you going to do if you die and you meet St. Peter at the pearly gates? And he says, what, you know, why should I let you into heaven? Well, most of us don't really believe anyone's going to meet St. Peter at the pearly gates, but it's a common... Mm -hmm folk image. It's a common folk image of people after death. And I think that the story of Lazarus and the rich one is based on that kind of folk imagery uh, among the Jews. And not that Jesus was affirming that that really is going to happen that way. But, and I do think that the story of Lazarus and the rich man is not really about the afterlife. Uh, sure, that is the setting for the story. But this, the story, I believe, has its climax in the statement that if your brothers will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they also will not listen to a man who rises from the dead. And I believe that that is the message of the parable. It has not really to do with, well, what are things really like after people die? The, the scene in, in the afterlife, Abraham's bosom and Hades, is really just the stage scenery for the conversation that gets that point across. Now, Hades, as you mentioned, should not be thought to be hell. Uh, in the New Testament, there are three words that are in the Greek that are translated as hell. One of them is Gehenna, which literally means the Valley of Hinnom. One is Hades, which is equivalent to the Old Testament Sheol. And then the other is Tartarus, which is used only once. And that's in uh, Jude, where it talks about the angels that fell or in Tartarus, uh, mm -hmm. which was a, a Greek word that had come out of Greek mythology for where the Titans were, uh, were imprisoned. So there's three different words very different words with different ideas that the King James version and earlier English versions had used the word hell to describe. But you're right. Every, every Greek scholar now knows that the word Hades did not mean what most of us think of as hell. Most people think of hell as the place of the punishment of sinners after the judgment. Mm -hmm. But Hades, uh, Hades is where everyone went. Uh, even David believed he'd be going to Hades. You will not leave my soul in Hades, he said in Psalm 16. And there's many references to uh, Hades as simply the generic place of the dead. So scholars now would say, well, Hades, we don't even have an English word that's exactly parallel to it. It's sort of the undifferentiated place of the dead. And so almost all newer translations, including the New King James, do not use the word hell for Hades. They simply use the word Hades. Uh, 
that is, they leave it untranslated, which is the best way to treat it. Uh, now, the Lazarus and the Rich Man, even if it was a true story, is not talking about the lake of fire. Hades is not in the Bible equated with the lake of fire. In fact, in Revelation 20, Hades and death are thrown into the lake of fire. So mm -hmm. they're distinct from it. Uh, the man in Hades in, in the story of Lazarus, the rich man, is actually, uh, he's just died. He's in what we might call the intermediate state. Uh, he's dead, but he hasn't resurrected. He hasn't been to the judgment. He's not in the lake of fire. No one's there yet. But his brothers are still alive. So we know it's not the end of the world. We know this isn't the final judgment scene. This is where somebody goes, or, or at least on this template, where people would go when they die. And, uh, but again, I think the story is not an actual story about an actual case, nor do I think it really necessarily describes the way things are after people die, nor do I think it's even intended to talk about that subject. That's well, when you get into, when you get into talking about, I'll say real hell, real hell, <laughs> yeah. you get into two words, which are Gehenna and Aonios. And once you really get into this conversation, a lot of how you come out of it is determined by how you come to see these two words, Gehenna and Aonis. You spend a chapter in your book on that, and I wonder if you could just sort of briefly go over that. Well, Gehenna is an interesting uh, word to try to understand. Now, all, all English translations that I know of do translate Gehenna as hell. And they also, I mean, I think most Christians equate Gehenna with the lake of fire. I, I'm not sure that's valid. The reason they do is because in the intertestamental period, because the Old Testament said really nothing about eternal uh, destinies, in the intertestamental period, uh, the Jews who were still in Persia, who did not return after the Babylonians were conquered, uh, they were affected by Persian ideas, some of them from Zoroastrianism. Uh, the, there were lots of Jews in Egypt after the exile. In Alexandria, there was a huge Jewish population. They, were, they picked up ideas about the afterlife from the uh, Egyptian Book of the Dead. And the Greek culture, of course, was everywhere. And both the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the Greek culture and even Zoroastrianism all had some things in common. And that was that when a person dies, there's a couple of different places they could go. Uh, you know, one is, uh, both of them are in Hades. All people go to Hades, but Hades had two compartments. One was the flames and one was the comfort zone. And so the Jewish rabbis had developed this idea in the intertestamental period that the righteous in Hades are in Abram's bosom or a place called paradise, but that the wicked are in a place they called Gehinnom, uh, which is, sounds very much like Gehenna, but, and is based on it. But, uh, Gehinnom, then, in the rabbinic writings, was a place where the wicked would go after they die for a year. And some rabbis believed that after that year, they'd be annihilated or they'd be uh, uh, restored or something. But they, they had different views about what happened there, but they believed it was a fiery place. That where the rich man was in the story of Jesus was would have been referred to as Gehinnom by the rabbis. Now, Jesus used the word Gehenna, which is the Greek word, for the Valley of Hinnom, which is an actual place, uh, you know, outside Jerusalem, southwest of Jerusalem, there's a valley called the Valley of Hinnom. It has a, a checkered history. You know, that's where Manasseh burned infants to, uh, to Molech and so forth. That's, yeah. you know, horrible things happened there. But 
one thing that is famous, it's famous for is in Jeremiah chapter seven, Jeremiah said that the Valley of Hinnom would become called the Valley of Slaughter. Yes. Because of the abundance of the bodies that would be there. And he's talking about the Babylonians. We're going to come there and destroy Jerusalem, slaughter the Jews and heap their bodies up in the Valley of Hinnom. Now, Jesus came to Israel at a time very similar to Jeremiah's time. That is, Jeremiah came when Israel was about to be destroyed by the Babylonians. Jesus came when they were about to be destroyed by the Romans. And the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans was like a carbon copy of the destruction. Yeah, of it's the interesting that the ministry of Jeremiah and the ministry of Jesus have these similarities. Yes, they do. There's many similarities between the two men. And one of them is that Jeremiah said that those who are judged when Babylon comes and wipes them out are going to be thrown into the Valley of Hinnom. And Jesus spoke about 11 times of the danger of those who rejected him being thrown into the into Gehenna, which a literal translation is Valley of Hinnom. That's what Gehenna is translated. So mm -hmm. hell is not really a translation of Gehenna. It's an, it's an interpretation. And so here's, here's why this is interesting. Because Jesus, when he used the word Gehenna, should be understood to either be using it the way the rabbis used it, which would be like what we call a place of punishment after death in, in flames, like, you know, like the rabbis were thinking, one of the compartments of Hades was called Gehenna, or Jesus wasn't using it the way the rabbis did, he used it the way the prophet did. He used it the way Jeremiah did, which is an entirely mm -hmm. different prophet. Right, and, and, when, there, and that part, let me just interject that part where you said that if, if people disobeyed his teaching, they would end up in Gehenna. Well, one of the things that he taught was the rejection of violence. You think that violence, that killing your enemies is going to be, is going to lead to your, uh, it, that, that, that's, that's the path to go. But actually, if, it's, if, if you follow this way of violence, what's going to happen is you're going to be gathered into Jerusalem because you think you're going to be safe there. But that's not going to, and he actually warned his followers, when that time comes, do not go into the city, head for the hills. Right. Because I think that was what he was seeing that there were, so the sinful and adulterous generation was sinful and adulterous because what they were doing was they were pursuing a way of violence and they were ultimately, you need to be careful of these people because they're going to lead you into a death trap into Jerusalem. When that time comes, <laughs> don't go. And once I understood all of that context, it really helped me understand what Jesus was warning about, why he was concerned about violence, Gehenna, and how that all worked together. Right. And, uh, you know, Eusebius, the historian in the early fourth century, he says that before the war, before the Romans invaded, that the church in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem received a, a warning through, a, you know, an oracle of God. Apparently some prophetic person said, flee. And so all the Christians left Jerusalem and they went out across the Jordan to a place called Pella and resettled there, so that when the Romans came and besieged the city, all the Christians had escaped. Now, that means that when Jesus preached to the Jews and said, listen, you're either going to have to enter into eternal life or, or be thrown into Gehenna. He's saying, if, you're, um, if you become one of my disciples and enter into life, you'll be one of those who actually escape before the Romans arrive. If you reject me, you'll be here when they arrive, and the, you're, you'll be wiped out, and your bodies be thrown into the the Valley of Hinnom, just like Jeremiah said would happen in his generation. And so 
there's a sense in which the people of, of Israel, when Jesus came, were facing two possible destinies. One was to be in the kingdom of God and following Christ, which would result in their escape prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. The other was to stay and uh, and fall with Jerusalem and suffer that horrible destruction in Gehenna. Now, so what I'm saying is the word Gehenna, although all English translations still translate it as hell, I have a feeling that just as they stopped translating Hades as hell, they may eventually have to stop translating Gehenna as hell as they begin to realize that hell is not a translation of the word Gehenna. Yeah. David Bentley Hart, in his translation of the New Testament, refers to it as the Vale of Hinnom. Okay. Uh-huh. That's, the way he, that's the way he translates. Let's, let's move on to another word that becomes important in all of this, and that is this aeon or aeonios. Yeah. And that really comes into, into play because we're used to thinking of time moving on as an eternity, but in, when you look at biblical language and Jewish understandings of time, they were— you, they were thinking in terms of ages uh, that would come, and so life in the coming age and punishment or correction in the coming age. Could you talk about that? Yeah, the word ion or aeon uh, really means an age, uh, and the word ionius is an adjective uh, based on that noun. So it has something to do with the age. Now, there's a lot of different ways people have thought this should be understood. Uh, some think ionius means pertaining to an age. Some think it means enduring for an age. Uh, And frankly, the word is ambiguous enough it could mean either one. It can mean something that lasts for an aeon or something that Mm -hmm. pertains to the aeon, the aeon of the the Messiah, in other words, the the messianic age that would be established by Christ. And so, you know, in most cases, the word aeonius could be taken either way. Although it is a word that is used in the Septuagint to translate the Old Testament word olam. Olam and Ionius are traditionally very often translated as eternal or everlasting. And when you get into discussions with uh, traditionalists on hell, you know, they they insist, but the Bible says it's eternal punishment. It's eternal fire. It's eternal this, eternal that. And, uh, and yet, the word eternal there is going to be the word ion or ionius, and it's going to be, in the Old Testament where you find the same word, it's going to be the word olam. And olam really means indefinitely long. It means, um, actually, it means hidden beyond the horizon. That's the, the root of the word olam, is that it's beyond the horizon. The end of it may exist, but we can't see it from here. You know, the mm-hmm. end of it is beyond the point of our vision. And it could be either way, both past or present or future. Things in the ancient past that we can't see any that far back or the future that we can't see that far are olam. And that's also, in like I said, in the Septuagint, uh, that was translated by the word ion or ionius. So that ionius really just means, I mean, if it, if it means duration at all, it just means for a very long time, the end of which is not visible from here. Uh, it doesn't mean unending necessarily. Now, on the other hand, as you said, <clears throat> the Jews divided things into ions or ages, and the age, uh, the, the the age that now is to them was the age of the Torah. The age to come was going to be the age of the Messiah, and so the New Testament writers believe that the age to come had arrived in Jesus, and that they have the life 
of the ion, the life of that age. They have the species of life that's an aspect of that age of the Messiah that he gives. But that would mean that the punishment received would be the punishment associated with that age too. Uh, to say that the punishment is ionious does not necessarily tell us how long it lasts, but rather the character of it. It's the char- it's, it's a punishment that, that is of the character of that age, the messianic age, as opposed to telling us how long it lasts. Now, it might tell us how long it lasts, because frankly, scholars are divided on this. I have in mm-hmm. my book there, on the chapter where I'm talking about ionis, I, I give four different uh, ways that it is sometimes understood and, and, different, and quotes from different scholars who see it that way. But uh, I think most modern scholars think that ionis is best understood, meaning pertaining to the age, uh, you know, the, the life and the punishment that are uh, related to the age. Well, well I think that this... For an age. I think that this uh, gets us into why there were these different views in the early church, because you had early, the early church fathers were reading the Greek New Testament, and they were lived in a world where Greek was the common language, so they would have been familiar... Yeah. So they would have been familiar with these nuances of the language. So when they read of a, a Onian Colossus, um, they would have thought, oh, well, that's a correction in the coming age. And mm-hmm. so they could have thought, oh, well, and Colossus is a correction that could lead to restoration. And that makes sense when I look at other passages that talk about an ultimate restoration of all things. And so there right. was quite a movement of some of the scholars and early church fathers that thought there would be this restoration, but for, they saw these possibilities because they were reading these words in that context. And it wasn't until later on when the Bible gets translated into Latin, then, very, then into English, and we go through Dante's Inferno and all that history that we have problems seeing back into that time. So you talk in chapter six about views of the early, of the, of the early church. And so I was wondering if you could say about that, that how this then this this shows up in the early church. Yeah. Well, uh, until Augustine, which is of course the late fourth century, um, there were all three views were considered acceptable. Uh, not you know, Origen and before him Clement of Alexandria were strong universalists. Irenaeus a man who lived at the same time as Clement of Alexandria, of equal stature to him, certainly, was uh, uh, conditional immortality. Uh, Tertullian, a man of the same era, believed in eternal conscious torment. So, And all three of these people are very respected church fathers of about the same era, and each of them had their own views of what hell accomplished. And none of them called the others heretics. You know, there was never <clears throat> one camp that said, now this is the orthodox camp and the others are wrong. It's just that it was considered, and I think it's so, that much of what the Bible says about hell is ambiguous and that there is a biblical case to be made for more than one view. And so, you know, whichever view they took, they respected the others' rights to take another view. And you're right, uh, for these earliest church fathers, Koine Greek, which is the, the language of the Septuagint and of the New Testament, was the native language of these fathers. So they didn't have to go to the lexicon and say, well, what does Ionius mean? They grew up using that word in their common speech. They knew exactly what it meant and how many things it could mean. 
Now, Augustine is the one who, for the Western church, turned the eternal conscious torment view of, of Tertullian into the what we now call the traditional view. It became the dominant view in the Western mm -hmm. church. The irony is that Augustine himself said that he couldn't read Greek. He read the Vulgate, the Latin Bible, so that he depended for his understanding of eternal, uh, he depended on a Latin translation rather than uh, an understanding of the Greek words. So he, you know, he kind of is influenced by Jerome and the Vulgate and the Latin. And then he, of course, becomes the most influential Western theologian of all time, so that his views, which are colored by his ignorance of the Greek, frankly, become the dominant views of the Western church. And mm -hmm. uh, once you've got that view in place, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that people can't learn things after that point, but there there's limits on what they want to learn. There's limits on which doctrines they want to challenge. And even the reformers didn't challenge, uh, you know, well, Augustine's. Well, now I think what we're, we're in a time now where it's interesting to me that the people that seem to most want to be reinvestigating these things tend to be people that have evangelical backgrounds because they still have a very high view of scripture they have a very high view of the saving, the saving work of Christ. Um, they're very concerned about all of these things, and they're concerned about the character of God. And and so, it's um, there are some different reasons. And I think that I, I would like to just go into go through these as kind of the last part of the interview here. The in chapter eleven of your book, you talk about the the various. You give five different reasons why why people with strong biblical backgrounds who are, who are trying to find themselves in the core of the Christian faith still find that, that the view for what you call restorationism is, um, is appropriate. And then, so the first one is that it's, it's logical. And you refer to Thomas Talbot's template, and Thomas Talbot gives three views that have been hold, held in the history of Christianity. God wants to save all. God can do what God wants and all will not be saved. And that the first view is the Arminian, that God wants to save all. The second view is the Calvinist, that God can do what God wants. And then the third view is that all will not be saved. And that's accepted by both the Arminian and the Calvinist, yeah. then. And um, so I was just wondering if you could kind of go over that a, a little yeah. bit. Well, Talbot's brilliant about this, I think, because he points out that if God wants everyone to be saved, and if God can save all that he wants to save, then obviously he will save everyone. So that the third proposition that some will not be saved simply can't fit with those other two. Now, he points out that there are two camps that have been accepted as uh, you know, non-heretical in the evangelical world, what is the Calvinist view? The Calvinist mm -hmm. view is that God can save everyone that he wants to, but some won't be saved, which suggests he doesn't really want to save everyone. The Arminian says, well, God does want to save everyone, but some people won't be saved, which cancels out the point that God can save everyone he wants to. He's saying that all three of these views have been... Uh, accepted as orthodox, but you can't accept them all 
at the same time as orthodox. So if you take, you know, uh, if you take the first two as both true, then you have to reject the third one. And he said, why should that be any more heretical than mm-hmm. accepting the second and the third one and reject you know, like the Calvary? Yeah, and you also, if you accept the first two, then you also have to give up something. So if I accept the Arminian view, it seems I have to give up the sovereignty of God to accomplish God's, God's own salvific will, which I find that I did not want to give up. Mm-hmm. If I accept the Calvinist view, then I have to accept that God does not have the same salvific will for all people. And I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So to me, the the much easier thing ended up being um, rethinking my view of, of God's purposes in hell, however you want to think about that. That ended up being easier to rethink that than having to give up some of the major attributes about God that I felt like I just needed to hold on to. And Talbot's template really helped me to clarify that. Right. And I think I think what evangelicals have done wrong many times is that they've decided to arrive at their view of hell simply from a handful of proof texts, regardless what that does in terms of damage to the character of God. Whereas the Bible is not about hell per se, and there's only a few proof texts on it, but the Bible is about the character of God. And to say, you know, that God doesn't want to save all people certainly goes against everything the Bible seems to say. Uh, The fact that uh, God can overcome human free will if he really wants to seems to go along with what the Bible says, too. His hardening of Pharaoh, his putting it on Cyrus's heart, you know, to release the Jews and so forth. And I mean, God can do that. God is not required to, uh, you know, canonize uh, human Mm -hmm. free will. You know, that's the thing. I'm, I am more Arminian than I am a Calvinistic in my thinking because I do believe in free will. But I think uh, Talbot made a really good example. No, maybe, I think this might have been not Talbot, but Robin. Uh, Robin Perry. Perry. Yeah, I think he may have made this point in one of his books. But that, you know, okay, so we may believe in free will, but that doesn't mean we we preserve free will at all costs. If you, if you might let your children decide what they want to do in the afternoon to play outside. But if you see that they're going to run out into the street and you call them and they won't stop, uh, you could forcibly stop them. You know, you, you're violating their free will at that moment, but there's a higher purpose for doing so. I mean, you can give them free will up to a point, but there's a certain point at which you say, no, I'm going to have to step in here because you're being too stupid. You're, you're being too self-destructive. And, uh, and so he was saying, you know, God gives us free will up to a point, but, but is it all the way up to the point where he'll just watch us walk into the tree shredder, you know, and destroy ourselves uh, because we're stupid? And this, he suggests, no. I mean, belief in free will doesn't have to mean that free will is sacrosanct and that, you know, there, even God can't ever violate it. We know that he does. Well, and, there, and there may origin seem to believe that God would be able to preserve people's free will, but by through a series of experiences, illuminate them to such an extent that they would wake up and they would realize that these were counter. uh, So that, for instance, when a child becomes aware, they're still able to run out into the street, into into the highway, but 
but they won't do it because now they know what that it's dangerous and you know what will happen to them if they do that so they're still free to do it but they just know that it's you know so there's a there's a way to to preserve free will um and and for god to finally bring everybody home the second the second point is uh, uh, that in, in the case for restorationism is that God is love, which has ramifications. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, the Bible says God is love. It never says he is wrath, for example. And, uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, if you think God will save everyone, then you're not taking into account his wrath. Well, actually, I think the Bible does take into account his wrath. Isn't that what was poured out on Jesus on our behalf? I mean, uh, if Jesus died for all, if as many Christians believe, you know, Jesus received the wrath of God on behalf of sinners, then how, if we say that Jesus is going to save everyone, how is that diminishing the belief in the wrath of God? Uh, if God could just ignore his wrath, perhaps he wouldn't have sent Jesus at all. He could just forgive. But, but his wrath is fully accounted for in, frankly, in all three systems, or all three views of hell, I think. But, uh, but the love of God, if it is as it seems to be in Christ, in revealed in Christ, is that he's, he doesn't want anyone to perish. Uh, he, you know, he, he loves people more than we do. That's the, that's the important thing to know. You know, I mean, when we are more like him and when we see things as they are, it will not be, as Tertullian said, that we will be more inclined to rejoice in the torment of evil people, but rather we'll be less inclined to do so. It's our own carnality in many cases that rejoices in the suffering of others. God doesn't rejoice in the suffering of others. He's a loving God. And, you know, he does allow suffering just like a parent will discipline a child, uh, corrective uh, suffering. But... God doesn't take any delight in suffering. If he does, he's not a loving God. He is not love. And, and it, there's, there, is, there are ways to believe that God is entirely loving and still see the place of punishment, to see the place of discipline, to see the place of anger towards sin. But because I well, can love be, does, that's because what love does. Love does chasten. Exactly. And I mean, I love my children, but I can still get angry when they do bad things. That doesn't mean I reject them or don't love them. But if, you know, if, if, if God's wrath is the one thing that's absolute, then it has to cancel out his love for people in some cases. Well, you make the point that, uh, that God's love is not an attribute, but the essence. Mm -hmm. Well, there are three statements in the Bible that says God is blank. One of them is in John 4, where Jesus says, God is spirit. Uh, another's in 1 John chapter 1, God is light. And then 1 John 4, God is love. Now, God's not just partly light. You know, there's no darkness at all in him, John mm -hmm. says. He's light and there's no darkness at all. God is not just partly spirit, you know, and the rest is something else. No, God is spirit. There's, it's like whatever else is true has be, got to be consistent with the fact that he's spirit. Whatever else is true of him must be consistent with the fact that he is light and there's no darkness in him. Whatever else is true of him has got to be harmonized with the fact that he is love. And while, you know, in, in imposing suffering on wrongdoers can be consistent with love, it has to be, in fact, consistent with love. 
you know, it, there are certain forms of punishment one can imagine that would not be inconsistent with love. And there are some forms that are. And therefore, whatever hell may be has got to be in some sense consistent with the fact that God is love. It can't just say, oh, well, he's love at most times, except when it comes around to, you know, taking care of these people, you know, mm-hmm. then he's going to love them. Okay, well, the third point that you make is that there is nothing preventing God from extending opportunities for reconciliation beyond the point of death. That that you say that's the third of the five points for restoration. Could you could you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Bible doesn't say that God extends opportunity for repentance after death necessarily, in, in plain terms. There may be suggestions of it. I mean, the statements in Revelation uh, 22 uh, that, that talk about how the gates of the city are open perpetually and the kings of the earth bring the treasures in. And the last time you saw the kings of the earth, they were fighting against the lamb in chapter 19 and they were enemies, but now they're, and then they died. And now we see the enemy, the, the kings of the earth bringing their, their treasures into the city with gates that are always open. Some would say, well, that certainly sounds like, you know, after this life, there's still opportunity for people who died in rebellion, like the kings of the earth to come mm-hmm. in. Um, I don't know how far I would press that particular point, but I would say this, that even if we can't find a place that says that God allows repentance after death, can we find an image of God in the Bible that would prevent him from doing so? I mean, if God really wants all people to be saved, we believe, at least I do, I don't know if all Christians do, I believe that if Adolf Hitler had truly, from his heart, humbled himself and repented before God and received the grace of God, we would all rejoice and say, thank God that man turned to God and, and was redeemed. Maybe some people wouldn't say that, but I, I would. I'd say that about any sinner. Thank God. Whenever I, I, the thief on the cross, when somebody who's a great sinner repents before they die, we think, wonderful. We know God accepted them. But what if they repent the moment after they die? What has changed as far as God is concerned? I mean, how has God changed? We know they haven't. I mean, the person who repents a moment before death and a person who repents a moment after death are pretty much the same person. But on on theories that we hold, which are not taught in the Bible, God loves a person the moment before they die enough to forgive all their sins if they repent. But the moment mm-hmm. after they die, he doesn't love them anymore. He just wants well, to burn forever and well, there, and there is a mysterious, uh, you don't cover this in your book, I don't think, but there is a mysterious descent to Hades that Jesus makes to the dead. And we find this in the creeds, you know, that his descent, his descent to the dead and his making proclamation. And, you know, that's another one of those passages that's very highly debatable, but you can, the idea of Jesus you know, descending to the dead to make proclamation has had some traction in the history of the church. Yeah, that now that view is based on three passages in the New Testament, all of which are a little ambiguous, I have to say, and it's it's not really clear what they are saying. But some people think he went to preach to the righteous who had died in Hades. Some people think he went to proclaim his victory and kind of rub it in the faces of the wicked who had died. And there's other views about that. It's I mean, it's not very clear. Um, but at least one possibility is that he went down there and, 
preached to give people a chance to repent. Uh, there are other there are other views. I couldn't press for one of them above right. the others because the the verses from which that's derived are pretty ambiguous. But uh, but I do know this uh, that my you know I've had children who have rebelled against me. If they had died in that condition, and I were God, which means I was on I was capable of reaching out to them after they died, uh, and they repented after they died. I, I'd rejoice. I'd be delighted. I mean, I would have, I wouldn't say, sorry, snooze, you lose. You know, you had a few years, you, you know, you had your 70 years to do that and you, you missed it. So I don't care about you anymore. No parent would be like that. Now, of course, what people often say is, well, you're not God. God is different than we are. True. He's more loving than I am. He's more forgiving than I am. He's more gracious, not less so. I mean, to suggest that we can't take our human emotions and transfer them to God is nonsense because Jesus encouraged us to do that. When he said, "How you earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts? He's appealing to yeah, our- Yeah, even if you're evil, even, if, even yeah. evil <laughs> earthly fathers yeah, know how to do that. Our instincts, in fact, the whole, the whole reason Jesus referred as he did to God as the father, which rabbis generally didn't in those days, uh, was to appeal to the fact that we know what a father is. You know, I have a friend who uh, is more traditionalist about hell, and he's, and he's kind of critical of me because I'm because I'm friendly toward the idea of universal reconciliation. And he says, he says, Steve, I think you probably have just become more soft about that because you've had children that rebelled against you. I says, you know, that's very possibly true, and and it'd be very foolish of me not to see it. In, in view of my experience, because when I had no children, I didn't understand the love of God as much as when I did have children. You know, when my first baby was born, I remember thinking, wow, now I understand the love of God as a father for a child. But it wasn't until I had rebellious children that I understood how a father feels toward a rebellious child. And, mm-hmm. and Jesus encourages us to see God's heart as a father's heart, the, the prodigal son's father, you know, uh, he wasn't full of wrath toward his son. His son had shamed him. His son had wasted all the good things he'd given him. His son had lived a, a life that the, the father totally disapproved of. But, you know, when his son came back, his father didn't even wait for his repentance to be fully verbalized. You know, I mean, was, the father wasn't seething in anger toward his rebellious son. Nothing can please a father more than to have a rebellious child come home. And if, and, and that's God. That's God in the, in the story. Yeah. And, well, even, and in that, just if I can interject really quickly, even in that parable, later on, the father goes out to the, to the other son, and he says that the son of mine was lost, and he was found. He was dead, and yeah. now he is alive again. So I even see in that parable a sense that there's this, that the destruction that sin leads to, there's a Greek word, apolumai. That, that that apolumai can be destruction and either and even death but once but there can that apolumai is not irreversible for the god who is able and wants to who is able to to restore which brings us to the fourth point which is that you say uh, that the five basic reasons that you list that you think people make a case for for restorationism is that god is determined to restore 
all that is lost. So could you talk a little bit about that one? Well, you were talking about apolumai. The, the word apolumai is translated perish, destroy, and, and lost. And uh, the story of the prodigal son, which is in Luke 15, is preceded by two other parables that are similar. One is about a lost sheep, and the other is about a lost coin. So you've got three lost things in, in three parables. And the shepherd goes out and he seeks for that lost sheep until he finds it. He doesn't stop seeking until he finds it. The woman who loses the coin, she sweeps every corner of the house. She moves heaven and earth, as it were, to make sure she gets that coin back. And she rejoices to get it back. Uh, the father rejoices to see his son back. Uh, the mm -hmm. idea here is that God is committed to losing nothing, uh, ultimately. Now, th there is question as to whether God's will in any measure can be thwarted in this respect. I mean, Jesus said when he prayed to the Father in John 17, you know, of those that you have given me, I have lost none except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. You know, one could say, well, God was determined that he lose nothing. In fact, in John 6, Jesus said, this is the will of God. The Father who sent me that of all that he's given me, I should lose nothing. And yet he did lose, Judas. Now, whether Judas was lost permanently, of course, is what is up, up for debate here. You know, whether there's, mm -hmm. whether Judas might repent after death or whatever, we, that's actually the question on the table. But it does seem that God's will was that Jesus would lose nothing that was given to him. And yet Jesus said he did lose one. Now, that loss may not be permanent, but the, it is, to my mind, it's, I'm not fully universalist. I'm favorable toward universalism, but I'm not sure that there aren't going to be some that God would love to redeem, but they will not. But I, I'm, I probably lean more toward universalism, certainly in my sentiments. But uh, the point is that I'm undecided on these, on these matters, but it does seem that God has a determined to restore all that was lost. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save or to recover that which was mm -hmm. lost. And I think that which was lost is not only people. I think the whole original plan in the garden is what was lost and what's to be restored. And um, so I know this, that if I had the power God has to pursue eternally a rebellious child of mine, nothing would stop me from doing so until I had found him. And that's mm -hmm. what Jesus seems to say is God's commitment. Yeah, that's interesting too. When, uh, when you start mixing that all in, all in with the idea, Isaiah 46, 10, that God knows the end from the beginning. So it seems like God would know if God was going to be able to find the lost things before they ever got lost. And that one of the things yeah. about lost things is that lost lostness implies belonging. So, mm -hmm lostness doesn't mean you don't belong. Lostness means you do belong. The The coin belonged to the woman. The, the sheep belonged to the shepherd. The son belonged to the father. So there was never a question about belonging that was involved in any of that lostness. Excellent point. Yeah, it just means alienation. It doesn't mean not belonging. Yeah, he's right. still, owned, still owned. Okay, well, let's, this is the, um, this is the last of the five, of the, of the five points that you give for those who hold Christian universalism, and that is that, uh, or restorationism, and that's the idea that Christ is victor. That is such an important point, because the Bible continually refers to what Christ accomplished as the great victory over Satan. I mean, in Revelation 5, uh, one of the elders says to John as he's weeping, do not weep 
the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And, you know, Jesus is the one who prevailed. He's the one who conquered. Jesus said, you know, the, you know, uh, be of good cheer. I have conquered the world. Uh, mm -hmm. Colossians chapter two says that Jesus in the cross triumphed over the principalities and powers and disarmed them, uh, made a show of them openly. In Hebrews chapter two in verse 14 says, Jesus through death destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus said he had bound the strong man. It was plundering his house. All these statements indicate that Jesus is the uh, undefeatable winner uh, over in this conflict, in this cosmic warfare over the souls of men and over the world. Uh, Satan has had his run, and it was a good run for him. But but Jesus has conquered him, and he's and Jesus is, of course, infinitely more power than Satan. You know. As Lewis points out, C.S. Lewis points out, you know, Satan is not the the equal opposite of God. He's more like the equal opposite of Michael. You know, all created beings, including Satan, are infinitely inferior to God. So it's not not as if God's ever had to wring his hands wondering if the devil can defeat him. It's just mm -hmm. a question, you know, working it out in history. But the Bible teaches that Jesus did defeat him. Now. Any view that holds that God doesn't get all that he paid for, any, any view that gets, uh, tells us that the majority of people are still lost, or even any people are lost that God wanted to save, would make God not the winner. And uh, especially if we view things as a conflict of you know, God's interest versus Satan's interest, if, uh, if God wants to save all souls and the devil wants to damn them all, and lo and behold, in the end, most of them are damned, uh, and God has lost them. Well, I mean, God, I guess, could have set up a game where he could be the loser. But if he had done that, why would it always be said that he was the winner? You know, how is God the victor if most of the chips in the game have gone to his enemy, finally? If God doesn't get everything he sought out, sought, sought to obtain, and mm -hmm. frankly, he paid for. Right. Or even, one of the, or, even, or even one of the chips. Yeah. Yeah, in, 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 in the case of in the case of that chip, that would be a loss. And I've always I, I remember when I started thinking through this. Well, what if it is the case that that one person is lost, and then how am I to be the one that says that I couldn't be that person? I haven't run. I haven't finished the race yet. I haven't. I could go off the rails and maybe end up being some kind of doing something horrible. You know. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I started I started thinking of it that way. One of the things also that that was interesting to me is is when I, you know, when I was working in churches, every church that I ever worked in always had a set of commentaries by William Barclay on yeah. the New Testament. Yeah. And uh, and that William Barclay wrote toward the end of his life, he wrote a spiritual autobiography, and in that he said, "I believe implicitly," and this is you quote this in your book too. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe implicitly in the ultimate and complete triumph of God. If one man remains outside the love of God at the end of time, it means that that one man has defeated the love of God, and that is impossible. Further, there is only one way in which we can think of the triumph of God. The only victory love can enjoy is the day when its offer of love is answered by the return of love. The only possible final triumph is a universe loved by and in love with God. It's a beautiful, beautiful vision and, and very sensible. Well, 
you know, I have, I don't know if it's just because I, I tell people sometimes I, I got a degree in um, management information, undergraduate degree in management in information systems. And so I learned some computer programming and computer programming is very binary. You know, if this, then that, and, you know, computer programming, it's either on or off. It's just a switch and it's, it's a register. It's either on or off. And so I think I tell people, I think maybe some of my thinking might be a little too definite. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I, I might, I have a way of, of arguing myself into sort of absolute positions. And so, uh, my Christian universalism is very convinced in, in, I understand the reasons for the positions, but I still remain completely convinced of this position. But sometimes people will say to me, you know, David, I appreciate your, your interest in, in all of these things, but you know, how can you be so sure about all of this? And I say, I know, I know, maybe it's just the way I am, but you know, if, if you, if you can't get to where I am, there's some people you should really look up, look up Steve Gregg, because he really is a committed Bible believing evangelical background person who's investigated these issues over 50 years. And, uh, and he, you know, has a view about this, but he doesn't hold it in, in the sort of absolute way uh, that, that, I, that I do. So check that out. And I like how you write at the end of your book. You say, uh, potentially the happiest or unhappiest result of a study such as this is the vision of the character of God that necessarily arises from whichever view seems the most persuasive. My own sentiments, I am afraid, have not remained entirely hidden in the presentation, though I remain genuinely undecided at the time of this writing, as to which view best represents the complete synthesis of the biblical information, I know what I would prefer to be true, and probably the reader knows also. In the absence of certain knowledge, I think, it is some comfort in knowing that more than one possibility, not only the worst one, is worthy of consideration. I, I would be very happy if everybody who read my book became a... a restorationists or universalists, if that's how, if that's how the evidence persuaded them. My mm -hmm. idea is to make sure that they are not deprived of every reason to accept any of the views. I mean, I, I really, uh, in the reviews on Amazon of my books, sometimes people say, well, he was awfully hard. He didn't do a good job on the, uh, you know, eternal conscious torment view because he obviously doesn't like it. Well, I mean, who could like it, you know, but the point is that I didn't leave out any of the arguments, you know, I mean, all, all three views, I gave every argument I could find. And I read many, many books for each view. I, I collected all the best arguments I could find for each view and presented them as honestly as I could. But, and then I also tried to provide the greatest criticisms for each view I could find in the literature so that people could really make up their own mind. But, I think that the majority of people who read all the views are probably going to lean more toward the universalist view, certainly more than toward the traditional view. I think the uh, annihilation view has obviously a lot of support these days. The rethinking hell people uh, are very strongly uh, conditional immortality. You're going to find a lot of evangelicals who are not quite ready to make the leap to the universal view, who, but they're realizing, oh yeah, the, that eternal conscious term of view, that, that really kind of stinks. So I think that for many people, 
I honestly believe for many people, the uh, annihilation view is kind of a stopping, uh, uh, a resting point between a traditional default view and maybe an eventual sympathy toward universalism. I don't know. Well, the title of your book, again, is All You Want to Know About Hell, Three Christian Views of God's Final Solution to the Problem of Sin. But that really wasn't the title that you wanted for the book, was it? No, I hated that title, actually. Uh, Like I told you, I felt like the title that the publisher gave it, it sounds to me like Hell for Dummies. And it's it's, it's that kind of not not that kind of book. It's not all about hell. It is about the character of God. And I and the purpose. My my desire of in writing the book was to call it "Why Hell?" Very simply, "Why Hell?" Because that's the question. Why did God make hell? What does it do? He's got a reason for everything. What is his reason? What purpose does he hope to accomplish through it? That's that was the question I felt my book really explores. And I felt like that title would have been a better representation of the contents of the book. Well, uh, to, I don't know. We could talk about the the title of your book, but to me, it's really to me your book is really a reflection on the character of God. Yeah, I mean that's that's what to me really strongly came through. That was the passion that was driving. Is you know, what does is what does this say about the character of God and how do we understand this and how do we put this all together? And so I really appreciate it. In, in my book, I have a, a list of recommended reading at the end, and uh, I definitely recommend your book there. You know, my book is just very much arguing for the universal restoration position, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think it's necessarily a good one to give to somebody who is trying to evaluate all the different views. I think that the book like you've, I think your book, the second edition of Zondervan's uh, Four Views on Hell, uh-huh. I think that, you know, if a person had your book and that and, and those two books, as far as a way to just do a comparison of all of the views, I think they would be well served. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. Well, you have been very generous with your time. You still have a radio show to do. Yes, I do. Today. Yeah, and we've got to preserve your voice a little bit, I guess. Yeah. But thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You've written, you've written a wonderful book. I've really enjoyed uh, this conversation that we've had and the chance to uh, to get to know you better. And so it's been, a, it's been a great experience. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.